Today on the John Ankerberg Show, we are talking about the explosive scientific evidence that appears in the fossil record, which proves that Charles Darwin's theory of evolution of life is wrong. These animals point to an intelligent designer who brought the animals into existence. The evidence not only challenges chemical evolutionary theories of the first life, but also Darwin's theory of biological evolution itself. What is this evidence? Well, suddenly, after decades of nothing, the Cambrian explosion occurred, which refers to the abrupt appearance of most of the major animal groups, called the phyla, the largest division of animal life, all representing novel body plans in a very narrow window of geologic time. So we have lots of fossils in the fossil record, but again, you have the transitional intermediate forms missing. These animals appear abruptly without any evidence of ancestral precursors. In other words, they didn't show up in a manner that matched what Darwin anticipated about the history of life. What does all of this mean to us? Today, you will find out. My guest today is Dr. Stephen Meyer, who received his PhD in the philosophy of science from Cambridge University in England, and has written the award-winning best-selling book, Darwin's Doubt, and the return of the God Hypothesis, that is right now a USA Today national bestseller. We invite you to join us for this special edition of The John Ankerberg Show. Folks, welcome to our program. I'm John Ankerberg, and my guest today, I'm so honored to have Dr. Stephen Meyer. He's a philosopher of science who received his PhD from Cambridge University in England. And Dr. Meyer has written several important books about scientific evidence for intelligent design. They include Signature in the Cell, DNA and the Evidence for Intelligent Design, Darwin's Doubt, The Explosive Origin of Animal Life and the Case for Intelligent Design, and most recently, The Return of the God Hypothesis, which includes three scientific discoveries that reveal the mind behind the universe. I recommend all three of these. They're all bestsellers. They're revolutionizing the scientific world. Everybody wants to debate this fella, and he's debated almost all of the new atheists today. Stephen, in previous episodes, you told us about how the discovery of the digital code in DNA, we got DNA right behind you there, has created a profound enigma, a mystery, for scientists trying to explain the origin of first life by reference to what is known as chemical evolution, the evolution of the first life from simpler chemicals. Okay, you also explained why the presence of digital information in DNA points to the action instead of a designing intelligent or master programmer. Today you're going to talk to us about another explosion of information in the history of life, more proof for intelligent design if you want, one that doesn't just challenge chemical evolutionary theories of the first life, but also Darwin's theory of biological evolution itself, which he formulated to explain the origin of all subsequent forms of life. So let me start with this. What is that evidence? What is the Cambrian explosion? Well, the Cambrian explosion refers to the abrupt appearance of most of the major animal groups called the phyla, the largest division of animal life, uh, representing 
novel body plans in a very narrow window of geologic time. So we have lots of fossils in the fossil record. The famed trilobites are one of the most distinctive or iconic uh, fossils of this Cambrian period. But there are many other animal forms that arose in that period of time, and they did so very abruptly without evidence of ancestral precursors. The transitional intermediates are missing. You have this, this abrupt appearance. Yeah, let me interpret, okay? Folks, if you go into the ground, all right, what he's talking about is you go down far enough, you're going to finally come to the fact of nothing, no animals at all. When you came to the Cambrian explosion, these are the first animals that showed up. What was the problem with them showing up the way they did? Well, they didn't show up in a manner that matched what Darwin anticipated about the history of life. Darwin depicted the history of life as a great branching tree where every form of life emerged gradually from a, a, a slightly simpler version, going back all the way to the first living cell. So you start with that first living cell, it morphs and changes, and you gradually get more and more complex forms of life until eventually, through a long gradual process, a series of gradations, you produce the first animals, the complex animals. But in the fossil record, we don't see the gradations. We just see those animal forms arising very abruptly without evidence of, of prior um, that's where uh, called uh, the Cambrian explosion. They call it, an explosion. it just showed right. up. Right. And it's not the only such explosion like this in the history of life. Many, many uh, uh, of the new life forms come into existence. The first birds, the first mammals, the first flowering plants in this explosive manner. And so th this is what we should expect on Darwin's theory is a, a tree-like picture. But we don't have the little blue dots underneath. We only have the gold dots, if you will. And the gold dots should be... It's like Darwin's tree of life. You start off with simpler molecules and you branch out into more complex. And the fact that it, when you look at the different animals that showed up, these guys didn't have any precursors in front of and them. And they're already very they're complex. They're already complex. They, they are they're tightly integrated anatomical systems, multiple systems. The trilobites there on the end had compound eyes, very similar to modern insect eyes. Very sophisticated organs already present in these animals from the very beginning. So it's not simple to complex, it's complex from the beginning. Well, paleontologists, they saw that. They saw all these animals, but the fact is, if you're thinking about it, if you think about Darwin's tree of life and so on, he was saying you got simple molecules and all of a sudden you've got a gradual evolution going up and then he had the tree where all the branches went. But you had the precursors in front. These guys all showed up an explosion. That's why you call it the Cambrian explosion. What was the problem that all of a sudden they immediately, paleontologists realized? Or another way of saying it, what's the deeper problem that is apparent when they found this? In my book, I talk about two mysteries, the mystery of the missing fossils, and we've talked about that a bit already, but there's a deeper problem that the Cambrian explosion and other similar explosions in the history of life raise, and that problem is how do you build all this new form? It's an engineering problem in a sense. How does uh, the Darwinian process of natural selection acting on random mutations generate that amount of new form in the time windows that are allowed by the fossil record? And that, in turn, reflects uh, another mystery that we've already talked about, which is the mystery of the origin of information. If you want to build life in the first place, as we've talked about before, you have to have DNA to build the proteins to service the, the, the cell. But when you have new animal life arising, 
what, you, what emerges with a new form of animal life are new anatomical systems, new organs and tissues. And those new organs and tissues require new cell types. And each new cell type, for example, uh, uh, if you have a digestive tract, if you have a, a, a gut, you need digestive enzymes to service the cells that make up the gut. So where did those enzymes come from? Those are proteins. Well, they, must, they would need information to build them in DNA. So when you have a new explosion of biological form, it in turn requires an explosion of biological information. And the question is, can the mutation natural selection mechanism build the amount of information that's needed to account for the explosive origin of animal life in the Cambrian period and other similar explosions, or is it insufficient? And that's the question that I think is now very much at the forefront of many biologists' minds, including many people working in evolutionary biology. Yeah, and it's, it's a big problem. But we've got the Darwinian evolutionary theory, and then now it's kind of uh, morphed into the neo-Darwinian theory. Tell us the difference between those two. Well, neo-Darwinism is just the idea that natural selection is not only acting on random genetic variations, but also mutations, changes, random changes in the code that are essentially errors, they're random copying errors. And those random copying errors are thought to be the source of new innovation or new form in the history of life. And that raises a big problem, and this is really at the forefront of the Cambrian mystery. Think of it in terms of computer science. If you have a section of functioning computer code, and it forms a program, and you start randomly changing the digital characters, the zeros and ones, ask yourself a question. Are you more likely to degrade that information or to generate something fundamentally new? Everybody here knows you got a big problem. Big problem. You're going to degrade that information and cause the original code to be non-functional far be before you would ever get to a new functioning uh, software program or operating system. And the same thing has turned out to be true in the biological case. We've talked in previous episodes about the way in which DNA contains information in a digital form. And so if you want to take an existing organism that has DNA for building its proteins and structures and turn it into a new organism, you're going to have to change the DNA code. The Darwinian proposal is that that would happen randomly as a series of copying errors. But just as in the computer world, you're going to end up degrading that information long before you would ever get to a new gene capable of building new proteins and new anatomical structures. And this has actually been supported by experimental research. There's an Israeli protein scientist, a molecular biologist named Dan Tofik, uh, recently passed away tragically, but his work is, was just absolutely fantastic. And what he did was experimentally test this idea. He looked at proteins and randomly change the sequences of amino acids, which were a product of the DNA instruction. So if you get a change in the DNA, you get a change in the protein sequence. And what he found was that somewhere, in each case, between 3 and 15 changes in the amino acid sequences would result in a protein that degraded so much it would no longer fold. And that's not nearly enough change to turn one stable protein structure called a fold into another stable and functional protein structure, another protein fold. So you dip into a, an abyss of non-function before you ever get to something new. And so this, the digital character of the information that we now know is necessary to build new form and structure, new animals, like in the Cambrian, uh, does not lend itself to, ch to random changes in a way that would help us to explain the origin of fundamentally new forms of life. 
Yeah. In your book, you explain that there is a mathematical reason that a natural selection acting on random mutational changes in DNA will never generate new proteins and those major changes in life. Tell us about that. Right. Here's an analogy that may help. If we think of an English word, say 12-character word, it turns out that for every arrangement of those English letters, those 26 letters in the English alphabet, that will spell a word, there's a corresponding 100 trillion gibberish sequences. And that's just because there's so many different ways you can arrange the letters of 26 times 26 times 26 times 26 possibilities out to the 12th power. That's a lot of different combinations that you could generate. Now, the question that many biologists started to ask and mathematicians in the 1960s was, does that same sort of problem apply to the, the information in DNA? What we know from English is there's a lot more ways to go wrong in arranging letters than there are to go right, to, to build a, a functioning word. Is the same thing true of the DNA? Because if it is, then random mutations are going to be much more likely to degrade information than to build it. And what has been discovered is that, that the DNA protein system of information storage and transmission is subject to this very same problem. That there are a lot more ways to arrange DNA characters that will produce non-functional gibberish, amino acid sequences that don't fold into proteins, than there are that will produce stable protein folds that will perform functions. And the ratio is not just one in 100 trillion. I have a colleague, Douglas Axe, who worked on this for 14 years at Cambridge University, and he asked a really important question. He said, how common or rare are the functional sequences in comparison to all the non-functional gibberish sequences? And what he discovered was that for a relatively short protein, of about 150 amino acids long. Which is no big deal in your body. No big deal, we've got some that are thousands of amino acids long, so this is a relatively short protein. Right. So the question Axe was asking is, was for every one of these possible arrangements of amino acids, right. how many will fold into a stable protein structure that's capable of doing a job? Yep. And the ratio that he determined experimentally was that for every stable protein structure that's, that's function ready, that'll do a, a job, there are 10 to the 77th gibberish sequences of amino acids that won't. Which means that, in essence, what we're looking at is like a bike lock where you've got 10 possibilities at each dial and 77 dials, and you're searching <laughs> for one combination out of all those 10 to the 77th possible arrangements. And it turns out if you do the math, which I do in the book, that even with all the organisms that ever existed on planet Earth, and they're about 10 to the 40th, organisms, which would give you 10 to the 40th replication opportunities where you could have a mutation that would search that big space, you still only could search a minuscule portion of the total number of possibilities, which means it'd be kind of like looking at a, if change the metaphor, but it'd be like having a needle in a haystack search where you've got a needle hidden in a great big haystack and you're only allowed to search one tiny quadrant. The quadrant is 10 to the 40th over 10 to the 77th, which is the fraction 1 over 10 to the 37th power, which is to say you would only be allowed to search randomly in the entire history of life on Earth one ten trillion trillion trillionth of the possible amino acid sequences. Now to just bring that point home, what that means is that the mutation selection mechanism, a random search, is overwhelmingly more likely to fail than to succeed. It's overwhelmingly more likely to find a non-functional sequence than a functional one. 
which means it's not a plausible mechanism for generating new biological information, and that's a big problem. Yeah. In Darwin's Doubt here, which is one of your best-selling books, all right, you also talk about the circuitry that's in the animals, and that causes a problem too. Why? Right. The, these little circuits are called developmental gene regulatory networks. So inside living cells, you not only have information in the DNA, but you have a whole system of turning the information on and off at the right time, a, a regulatory circuit that turns it on and off at the right time, so that as the different cells are differentiating one from another, a bone cell from a muscle cell, that the right proteins are turned on at the right time to service those cells as the animal is developing. And the scientists at Caltech who mapped out these, what they're called developmental gene regulatory networks, discovered is that when they mapped out their functional relationships and the way they channel and use information, they looked for all the world like electronic circuits. And that was kind of mind-blowing, but then they made another discovery, and that is that these developmental gene regulatory networks are not subject to perturbation. If you change them a little bit, they, then animal development shuts down. They're highly integrated systems such that small changes will mess everything up. And that raised a huge problem because we know you need these developmental gene regulatory networks to build a given form of animal life. But if you want to change one form of animal life to another, that means you'd have to change the developmental gene regulatory network. And that's the one thing we know cannot change without destroying animal development. And that's another huge problem that has, that has caused doubts about really all different theories of undirected biological evolution, neo-Darwinism and some of the later theories as well. Yeah. And I remember you coming up as a grad student, and you're looking at all of this, and uh, you have the kind of mind that was curious about this, just raised more and more questions, and finally came to the uh, question, can I make a scientific hypothesis about this to answer all of these questions that are raised that nobody can answer about how in the world do we get the Cambrian explosion? How do we get these animals? How do we get the different forms? How do we get this circuitry? Where did all this information come from? Well, the, the key thing I was thinking about is whether or not it's possible to develop a rigorous scientific argument for intelligent design. Key phrase, scientific and, argument. Right, and also maybe all these problems with Darwinian evolution and other forms of biological evolutionary theory, as well as chemical evolution, maybe there's, they're the flip side of a positive case for intelligent design. And so I got to thinking about that and discovered that Darwin used a method of reasoning for investigating the remote past. It was called inference to the best explanation. And he got this largely from Charles Lyell, the great geologist, who was also investigating events in the remote past. And Lyell had a maxim. He said that when you're trying to explain an event in the remote past, we should be looking for causes that are now in operation. Causes that we know from our present experience produce the effect in question. And so I got to thinking about that, and I asked myself, well, what is the cause that produces circuitry? What's the cause that produces digital code? What's the cause that produces a complex information storage, transmission, and processing system? All of which are features of either living cells or animal life today. And in each case, the answer was, well, from our present experience, we know of only one type of cause that produces those effects, and that cause is an intelligent agent or a mind. And about the time I was thinking about this, I came across a passage in the work of a man named Henry Quastler. He was a, an information theorist or scientist who was a pioneer in applying informational concepts to understanding living systems. And he made an offhand comment 
you know, on page 16 of one of his little books, I remember it vividly, he said, the creation of new information is habitually associated with conscious activity. And I thought, is that right? And I began to think about that in light of all the failures of evolutionary th theories to explain the origin of information and the origin of information processing systems. And I thought that absolutely is right. In our experience, whenever we see information, whether it's in a hieroglyphic inscription or a paragraph in a book or embedded in a radio signal or in a section of computer code, and we trace that information back to its ultimate source, we always come to a mind, not a material process. So Quassler's little quotation, his maxim, information is habitually associated with conscious activity, is true to our experience. And our uniform and repeated experience, which underscores that principle, is also the, the basis of all scientific reasoning. In fact, that was Lyell's dictum. Right. That the present is the key to the past. Our present knowledge of cause and effect should guide our inferences about what happened in and the past. And he was a mentor to Darwin, and Darwin picked it up and put it in his book, too. Exactly, exactly. And so what we have developed in making the case for intelligent design biology is a positive case for intelligent design is the best explanation of these key features of life, the information-bearing properties of DNA, the information processing systems that are at work, expressing that information, the circuitry that uses it, and we have developed a positive case based on those features and also based on Darwin's own method of scientific reasoning, arguing that intelligent design actually provides the best, most causally adequate explanation of the key features that we see in life. Yeah. Intelligent design basically says we're talking about God. Well, initially it just infers to an intelligent agent. But as you know, in my most recent book, I think when we talk about not only the evidence from biology, but also the evidence from physics and cosmology, the type of designing agent that is necessary to explain those three classes of information is the type of agent that has the attributes that, for example, traditional Jews and Christians have long associated with one and only one person, and that is yeah. the deity, with God. And that's why I wrote this new book, Return of the God Hypothesis. It's kind of a catalog of your journey, basically, in going through all of the realms. In fact, next week, folks, we're our last episode on this we are going to bring together all the strands of evidence that we have been talking about uh, in our last eight episodes to show you why they don't just point to an intelligent designer, the question I'm getting to, of some unspecified kind, a nebulous intelligent designer, but actually to a designing intelligence with the attributes of God. Indeed, to God the Creator. All right? And, you know, there's different gods out there, too. You've got a uh, deistic god, you've got a theistic god, and you've got a pantheistic god. All right? And we're going to talk about which one are we really talking about, and science helps us answer that question as, as well. But right now, we're going to say thanks for joining us today, but I want you to stay tuned because i got a personal word for you in just a moment. Stay tuned, John will be right back. Our goal is to present the evidence for the gospel worldwide and to encourage Christians in their walk with the Lord. This program is sponsored by the John Ankerberg Show Ministries and is made possible by the grace of God and your faithful prayers and gifts.